Welcome everyone to Stage Right. I'm your host, Sierra Haynes. My goal is to bring you along on a journey inside the minds and lives of some of Canada's most exciting playwrights. I've interviewed five playwrights that I've been curious to speak with, and now those playwrights are back and have picked other writers that they want to get curious with. Welcome to the Butterfly Effect. Whatever you're doing, we've got a story for you. This is Stage Right. This week, my guest Rex Deverell has invited fellow playwright Marcia Johnson into conversation. Rex really looked forward to discussing her brilliant new play, Serving Elizabeth. I had seen the show be mounted in theaters across the country, so when Rex suggested it, I was more than game to finally give it a read and get to know the mind and story behind its creation. Marcia Johnson is an actor, playwright, dramaturg, and librettist. She was born in Jamaica and has lived in Toronto since the age of six. Marcia works with several organizations to support members of the theater community, including Got Your Back Canada, where she's a core member. She sits on the Women Playwrights International Senior Advisory Board. She is a CASA founding member, a mentorship program pairing mid-career South African female playwrights, and Ergo Arts Pinkfest as a selection committee member, dramaturg, and actor a festival featuring the works of female, trans, and non-binary playwrights. She's also a member of ARCA, Artists for Real Climate Action, finding creative ways to help combat the climate crisis. During our conversation, we speak about serving Elizabeth, writing for radio and opera, and using writing as a tool to see herself on stage as a woman of color. Here's a synopsis of Serving Elizabeth so that you're in the know. Serving Elizabeth begins in Kenya in 1952 during the fateful royal visit of Princess Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh. Mercy, a restaurant owner, is approached to cook for the royal couple. As a staunch anti-monarchist, how can she take the job? Decades later, Tia, a Kenyan-Canadian film student interning in the London office of a production company doing a television series about Queen Elizabeth, discovers that there may be more to the story of the royal visit than we've been led to believe. Although she's been a fan of princesses all her life, Tia learns that fairy tales and real life are very different things. Finally, before jumping into our conversation, I need to acknowledge some technical difficulties we had while recording the interview. Although I'm very grateful to have the internet, sometimes it doesn't always work like we want it to. A glitch occurred that prevented the end of our conversation from being recorded as it appeared to be. However, you'll still get quite an insightful and engaging conversation with Marcia and Rex. Just bear with me on this one. Thank you. So for everyone listening, I'm Sierra Haynes. I'm sitting down with Rex Deverall and Marcia Johnson today. Thanks so much for sitting down with us today, Marcia. Yeah. (laughs) Rex, thanks for inviting Marcia. This is so exciting. Excellent. So Rex, as like a compliment hour, why did you want to speak with Marcia today? Well, you know, I've I've actually known Marcia for quite a while. We've been associates at at the uh, Playwrights Guild of Canada. But uh, I was bowled over uh, last summer uh, when I I saw uh, Serving Elizabeth. Mm. Um, It reached my gut and my heart and... uh, I was thinking of various playwrights I'd like to uh, talk to, but Marcia it just kept floating up to the top. It's interesting that since I have gotten to talk to you, Sierra, 
that there are some correspondences for us all with the uh, West Indies. My mother uh, was a Barbadian, Bajan, mm. um, and you've got that background in your life. Yes, and, I do. And there is Marcia exploring, exploiting some <laughs> of that. Uh, but also, if I had one uh, word for Serving Elizabeth, the play that was done at Stratford last summer and, and has had a, a bit of a trajectory before that, but not all that many months, right? You had two more productions. Uh, the premiere production was in February 2020 at Western Canada Theatre. Then Stratford had the Ontario premiere in 2021. There were two productions after that, and it's having its U.S. debut in July oh. this year. So, I mean, what? you hear Excellent. Canadian playwrights talk Weird. about how hard it is to get a second production, and I'm right there with them, and it just went from... Sublime to ridiculous. <laughs> Where is the American production? Uh, the Peterborough Players in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Okay, mm -hmm. thanks for letting us know. That's so exciting. Well, it's a great play. It was Thank so you. fun to read. And I love that there was like a story within a story <laughs> and it just kept kind of unraveling on me. And yeah, obviously, are we allowed to say where you got inspired to write it from? Well, if they were going to come out, I noticed that it me. wasn't directly said. <laughs> Like, I was very cautious at the beginning, but I don't know. I, I, I mean, I saw something on TV about the royal family and uh, when they were supposed okay. to be shooting in Kenya, all of the black people were in the background. And like, I know the story of the royal family pretty well. And so in other treatments of the story, not a lot of time is spent with uh, Princess Elizabeth in Kenya because she came back so quickly. Um, so mm. when I was watching and I saw that they were actually shooting there, I thought, oh, that's wonderful. They they know that part of this story was the bubblings of um, dissent and rebellion against, you know, colonialism. And you couldn't get more specific than the next heir to the throne. And that side of the story wasn't even mentioned. And... None of the black people had significant roles. And I thought that was a huge missed opportunity and too much like how we are seeing or we have seen history presented, you know, with people cut out of it. And there was no excuse for it because it was being done in the 21st century. And we are all aware of, you know, the effects of colonialism. And it was really top of mind. A lot of people were talking about it. So it was a missed opportunity. And I just the play just sort of came to me in spurts. And I wish my writing was always like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I remember when I was writing um, a play called Drift, which was loosely modeled on my parents and their relationship. It poured out of me. And uh, more often than that, it's like pulling teeth. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how you feel, but, yeah. but sometimes it is. When I saw the play in at Stratford, that was just as the um, revelation about all of these uh, uh, graveyards for uh, residential schools was settling on us. And it forced me to think about colonialism. I think that was one of the things that, that shook me. Because I like to tell myself the story of Canada. 
um, as the peaceable nation and the, the tolerant uh, nation. Many years ago, I wrote a play for the World Council of Churches. And um, one of the things that I did in terms of research was uh, go to Montreal. And I lived in with the Jesuits for a couple of weeks. And I like, you know, to, to think of uh, all of that stuff as really really best intentions <laughs> <laughs> you know huh. and um, you know it, to come to terms with Canada as a, a colonial colonized mm -hmm. country your play was not about Canada and colonization in Canada it was set in Kenya and yet it shook me it, in terms of resonance to the roots. You have your character in the, in the play wanting to be a princess all of her uh, young life. And her trajectory is that she becomes more politicized, as politicized not, as, as her, her mother, whose story is, is that she was a, a revolutionary in her own right asked to cook for Princess Elizabeth when she visited Kenya. How did you start writing all of this? What was the what was the first scene that you created? When I was coming up with the scene, I, I knew the play, I knew that I wanted to write more than just my version of the visit that gives voice to some of the people who didn't think the royal family was so great. It's confusing. It's it's complicated because throngs of people showed up waving flags and cheering and but that wasn't the only side of the story and I just thought, "Oh, who could I have in there? So, can I have like a counterpart like this Kenyan version of Elizabeth or someone like that. And I just thought, who would she come into? Who would she come in contact with? And it would be people who served her. So I thought, well, I, I why don't I have it be a cook? Someone that has to serve her, but someone who's very anti-monarchist. And so that creates the conflict that playwrights are always looking for. And mm. um, I, I initially had her... Um, jumping at the opportunity and then feeling ill about it later. But I thought, what if she always felt that way and had to be convinced in some in some way? And so I would write all these things and I'd get to this point and I wouldn't know what happened next. And that's when I'd switch to the modern storyline with Tia okay. in, in working in the production office of the company that's mm -hmm. making the miniseries about Elizabeth. And really both the young woman in the production office and Mercy, the cook in Kenya, are me. Only Mercy gets to really say what I wish I could say in person when it mattered, like to the person there. And right. Tia is definitely me loving, you know, it was like a fairy tale come true. You know, these were real princes and real princesses. They were having real weddings and, you know, I, I had my awakening much later than Tia did. She's only around 19 or 20. I was 
It's much later, you know, when the scales fall from your eyes and say, I should not be so impressed by these people because their lives are built on the legacy of slavery. Like that's, Mm. that's how the monarchy got its wealth. If people hadn't been subjugated and their lands hadn't been taken over, they would not have the wealth that they do. And that's nothing to be proud of. Do you remember a moment where you had that realization? No, it just sort of built, you know, Mm. you know, you you go to a museum and you go to all these, you just, I can't say there was just one moment, but um, I gave it as one moment to Tia because that's more dramatic. Yeah, (laughs) Um, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, uh, it was it was a real pleasure to write and it just coincided with Thousand Islands Playhouse looking for a playwright's unit in the year of the 150th anniversary of Confederation and wanting to look at plays that really look at the aftermath of that, you know, and uh, I found that out the day after I watched that episode of The Crown, there I said it, the day after a friend (laughs) of mine sent me the call for submissions saying that that's what Thousand Islands was looking for. And I just wrote a pitch for the play in minutes and sent it like that. And I reread it a little while later. It was riddled with typos and all kinds of things. It just like, this is what I would like to write in this day and age that someone would write a story about them. They would send. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, the, the structure of the unit um, was such that it really held me accountable. Every month we had a meeting and we had to have new pages. That's all there was to it. New pages to be read aloud. And included in that um, unit was uh, we had a week in these cabins near the theater um, that had no uh, Wi-Fi. That was fantastic. <laughs> we had to go into town if Forced we needed to. Forced you really right, yeah, huh? yeah. And <laughs> the young company got to read what we'd come up with so far. They were in town that week, so it was great. And then the final bit was in December of that year to have a reading of the full scripts um, for the rabid audience at Thousand Islands Playhouse. I don't know if you know that theater, but. I would love to I one tell day. You, it seems very interesting. I almost made like it. In, in Toronto, <laughs> there's a big theater industry. And so for things like readings, you just get other people in the industry and maybe a few super fans. Mm-hmm. But this, like, it's just people in the community pack, like, they're just amazing. They want to come and see a reading. And they were a wonderful first audience to have. Have you seen other productions yourself of of Serving Elizabeth and what's it like to watch something that you wrote but also acted in yeah. be done by someone else? Um, so I was very um, happy to be in the uh, premiere production. It really helped to keep me, keep me calm because I wasn't fussing about, you know, tweaking with the script. I was working on my acting performance and I think if I had not been in it just because it was the premiere and everything, I might have felt the uh, urge to keep on working on it. But since I was in it, I was occupied. So that was great. Watching the Stratford production, I have nothing negative to say about that experience. I mean, I was told that 
this was, you know, pandemic style, that, you know, things were not full capacity, the things that were available to us. And I I think I might have, I don't know what, my heart, I don't know if my heart could have taken full capacity Stratford because I got everything I wanted and more. It was beautiful design, mm, wonderful, so wonderful actors, great directing with a director who always consulted me and insisted that I was there for the rehearsal period. That was mm, jewels. So then the next production I was in again, and it was mm. interesting doing it a second time and then having seen it with completely new actors and a new director in a scaled down version in the studio at Thousand Islands. So that was a wonderful experience. And then I saw the production at Belfry, which was the one that I had the least to do with. It was a real exercise for me because the director is of a type where you've handed me your script, we've talked a lot about it, it's my turn now. And it was interesting because there were some mm. things that I thought, huh, yeah, I guess we didn't cover that. I thought it was obvious, but I guess not. Um, uh, and the audience really enjoyed it and it was received really well, but it was the most different of all the productions. You know, like the one that I wasn't involved with was the one that I thought wasn't as funny, <laughs> wasn't as, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I think if I had been there, I would have thought, you know, that's actually a joke. That's no. Okay. <laughs> but right. you know, they were all good productions and had wonderful things to recommend each of them for their own unique presentation mm. style. Absolutely. And how rare is it to be involved in a rehearsal process after, you know, writing a show and putting it out into the world? Well, I think it's as rare as, as a playwright wants it to be because it's in my contract. Mm -hmm. okay. I, I mean, I can put it in my contract. So a, a lot of actors don't like when there's a playwright in the room, which I find really odd because I'm an actor too. And I love it if the playwright's in the room. Could you imagine if Shakespeare was still around, we could really ask him a qu bunch of questions about the winter's tale, you know, it's like, yeah, I went to go visit Melody before I did her nice. show in Ontario to go talk yeah. about it. It's, I love yeah. that. Yeah. And, Absolutely. you know, there are some playwrights who have really made it, they've ruined it for us because they're the ones who sit there in the rehearsal hall and say, is she really going to do it like that? I would never do that. I respect the chain of command. I talk to the, the director and usually I can wait until the rest of her end of rehearsal, the the end of the rehearsal day or the first break or something. But if I see them going in a direction, like even in the Stratford production, there was some confusion about something happening the same day. They had assumed that the previous scene and this scene were weeks apart or something. And I would say, no, it's an hour later. And they went, oh, so if I had let that keep going and then wait till the end of rehearsal day, what there would have been no point. And, you know, they were really grateful you know, and when they reread it, they mm -hmm. saw how they'd made that mistake. But um, I'm not there to direct. I'm there because, uh, dare I say, I'm the expert on it. Not expert enough to direct it, because that's not a skill I have. I really respect directors. But I don't give away too much in a script. I don't, I'm not prescriptive. I don't do a lot of stage directions. I do that because I want to see the different ways that people can bring this out. But sometimes people need a little bit of that information or they will 
you know, make that error. I hope that makes sense. Marcia, I, one of the lines in the play, the you character was said, you know, write what you know, eh? Write what you know. And she says, I think there's more to it than that. I like to add, and if you don't know it, research. So you, you're writing this play about Africa. How did you research it? And how, yeah, well, when you got the concept? As it turns out, not very well. There were some things that I didn't know that I didn't know that have made it into the printed version of the script. And now every production has to get this page oh. of errata from me. Um, like, for instance, yeah. I had said that young Faith in the 1952 story was going to Egerton College in the fall. And I had looked to make sure that that university did accept female students. And I was very proud of myself. What I didn't realize until after the first production is that every university in Kenya was uh, created by the English white settlers and it was only their children, only white students were allowed at those universities in the oh, wow. whole country. And uh, so if anyone were to go to university, they'd have to leave um, the country. And most of them would go to a country, uh, a university called Mekerere in Uganda, which is just one country over. So, I mean, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and... Mm. If this play mm. does get a reprint, I'm going to write about that. I'm going to write about as much as I thought I knew, there was a depth of, um, you know, I, I don't know what to call it. You know, you, you were saying you were hoping that those Jesuits meant well. Um, you could not see anything in that behavior that shows that the colonialists meant well. It was just the last nail in the coffin to prove to me that they had no respect for the people whose lives and land that they were taking over and they thought they were lesser than them. And it hit me in the gut. I think the play would have had a different tone if I'd known that ahead of time. Hmm. Um, but I hmm. did as much research as I, I, as I thought I needed. But everything about the people in it, I will stand behind as true. Um, and not true in the, in the sense of factual, but, you know, I didn't write that Elizabeth killed puppies or anything. And I, and I, you know, I, I really feel that those people no. in those circumstances, this is the way they would behave and react. Mm -hmm. And so now in productions of the show, how do you handle that bit of information? Uh, I, well, all I do is change the name of the university because in, okay. in that particular okay. scene, the information is coming out right away. And it's really about two young people checking each other out. So I, I can't add too much <laughs> yes. there yeah. in that moment. Okay, but okay. Just, for, um, just for the sake of, you know, the truth, because that's what I go ahead and say in the script. Research what you don't know. Um, and I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm working on several projects right now. And uh, I'm diving much deeper than I usually do. I just get, mm. is that true? Is that the year that happened? Good. And I'll just keep going. And when I reread it, I won't always know right. that that was something that I made up or that that was something that I found out. I've been asking this to everyone who's coming on the podcast. I think just 
out of curiosity, what brought you to theater and what was your first experience like in a theater? Well, I was a very shy kid, um, an immigrant from Jamaica, and I just was, I just didn't know how to fit in, and you could barely hear me when I spoke. But the school that I went to, Alexander Muir Public School, was one of the satellite schools that um, an organization called Inner City Angels used as a test subject. So what it did was it brought in the arts to these schools, and the schools didn't have to pay for them. So we saw, you know, mm. National Ballet, Young People's Theater, all these different shows would come in and I would just sit there on the gym floor and like, and it's like I had to be snapped out of it when the show was over. Like, I, I, it just transported me somewhere. Um, so at first I was just thinking, this is what I love to watch. And then when I was in grade four, I got cast in a school play and I found my voice. You know, when I was given the words, when I was directed as to how to deliver them and where to move, it something just came over me. And I loved the silence because people were listening to me and I was not used to that. So I sort of at that age of nine oh. made up my mind that that's what I wanted to do. But it was a big secret because I thought people would laugh at me or they thought I, I was saying I want to be a movie star. And it wasn't that it was the live performance that I, I wanted. And I just didn't want people to tease me or mistake what I was saying, that I was thinking I was, you know, all fancy. Um, and it stayed with me for a long time. <laughs> oh, that's, so, that's such a sweet story. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> wow. And then what brought you to play writing? Um, just to create bigger roles for myself. I, I mm. just wasn't getting those parts and I knew that I could be the lead in a show so I wrote one play and I thought that would be it I would do that play and people would say oh that's right she can act and offer me things but it turned out that people are more impressed with my writing like they they hardly talked about my acting they just accepted oh yeah we knew you could act um, but writers are more rare and there need mm. to be more people telling these kinds of stories so I resented writing for a little bit. <laughs> That's true. There, uh, sometimes the way it, it has happened that a person who really wants to be um, an actor doesn't have the, the scripts in, in our generation to, to be able to, uh, to do that, to convince anybody that, uh, you know, uh, this, this could be... Uh, a, a role that anybody could act, you know? Yeah, I think that's what's kind of coming and changing yeah. now. And like, I see it in, in my schoolwork and I see it in the shows I'm being cast in. It's more open mm -hmm. and I feel very lucky yeah. to have the opportunity because I know that it didn't come easily. Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting because my theater auditions there would always be the requirement to do a monologue from a Canadian play. And, you know, we'd stretch it. I I think just like everyone else, I did uh, uh, Catherine's monologue from Waiting for the Parade. Um, but there was nothing that really suited us and it felt really uncomfortable. And I had a friend who would show up and she'd say, I'm doing a monologue from A Raisin in the Sun because I couldn't find any monologue 
that represented who I am as a black woman. And they go, oh, yes, yes, yes. And I just thought, when she told me that, I thought, I could have done that. (laughs) But what I did instead was write. It's been so interesting. I feel like going through school, I was in a transition period where school or the people were going, oh, our students of diversity actually need more representation in their classrooms and in the shows that we're putting on stage. And, and I and I'm loving seeing all this new work because, you know, these are all stories that are all just as exciting and valid and need to be seen. And it gives everyone a new perspective. And I think that's what theater is all about, sharing new points of views and, yeah. and asking people to stretch their I minds. I completely agree with you. And it's already halfway there because theater audiences are a special breed of people. You know, they come there wanting to use their imagination. I mean, you tell them that those two men are so identical, their wives can't tell them apart, and they go for it. You tell them that this person is now invisible, and they like they don't go and like, I can tell them apart. I can see it. They go for it. And that's what I love about theater audiences. Both of you have written for radio, radio dramas. How does that change um, your writing style? What changes for you when you're writing theater versus radio? That's the same thing, isn't it? Uh, that uh, only more so uh, that the uh, the radio audience creates this wonderful world that's better than any scenery, any, uh, you know, you have a sound effect. And, oh, that's what's happening. Um, it's, it's a world of imagination. It's, it's terrific. I'm glad that there are a, a few uh, chances to listen to uh, radio drama now. Uh, Chris Tolley is, is creating this uh, podcast series of Canadian plays that uh, kind of reproduce that old uh, when, when mm-hmm. radio uh, drama was queen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, I my first foray into radio drama was the adaptation of my second play, Perfect on Paper, um, and I brought it to CBC Radio Drama, and they said, "Yes, we'll you we want you to adapt it." And I had thought, "Oh, it'll be limiting because the audience can't see what's going on," but it was so um, it was the opposite of that because. I could now have a scene in an Italian villa seconds after the scene in Toronto happened. You know, I could have all these things going on. And it was great. Um, It was wonderful to do the adaptation. And then afterwards, I combined elements of the original stage play and the radio drama to create a, a fuller piece. And I thought the radio drama helped me make it much better. And then you also both worked on operas. Yes. Which is so interesting. Can you tell, uh, Marcia, tell me a little bit about the Lib Lab. I was sort of looking it up, but what's it like to go to an experience like that and what'd you get out of it and how is it to work on opera? Well, it was amazing. On in the first day, one of the facilitators said, you have to justify why you are telling this story with music. And for me, what that meant was, make the most of the tools that are available to you now that you are writing with music. And that's how I, you know, felt about theater. It's like, well, because you're in front of an audience, 
and they're they're giving you this, you know, commitment, you write this way or you write that way. It's like that that one comment just really affected my writing is like make the use of whatever style that you're writing for, you know, and and that's why I don't do a lot of monologues or direct address because I feel that's something you can get from a book. That's something you can get from storytelling. Mm -hmm. But theater, I'm trying to get people to feel like me when I would forget where I was for a bit because I'm following these people's lives. When the singers each got to do a presentation, like after we had that first introduction, and they would say, oh, I'm a tenor, and the tenor is usually the lead, he's the love interest, and then he would sing something from Puccini, and he'd go, oh, <laughs> they say, hi, I'm a soprano, the soprano does this, and then she, ah. And so I wrote my first piece, and that's when I realized that it's not just writing something and then handing it to the composer, me... I and my first composer, we sat on the piano bench together and I gave him my idea of what it was and he'd played a little snippet of music and I'd say, actually, no, uh, that's a bit too strident for whatever. And that's when I realized I had a musical vocabulary. So we got to, there are four hmm. writers, four composers, and we got to work with each other uh, for, with a different prompt for each short piece that we wrote. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. And I've written more opera since then but um i think i'm taking a break from it because when you're collaborating with someone it just takes up so much time and i'm just not available for that um but the next opera that comes to me i, I really look forward to to working on it what inspired you to go into opera that's such a different mm -hmm. like in my mind it's such a different place yeah and i'm much more <laughs> familiar with musical theater so it's interesting that i haven't written for that yet um, but I was at, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah so, I know I, it, yeah. I was, uh, at the word on the street book fair as I am want to do every September. And as I was walking, I heard this beautiful music coming from a tent and I peeked in and I saw four people sitting together and I knew all four of them. And then I stopped and watched and they were, they were playwrights that I knew. And then they each got up and they were introducing their piece. And I thought, well, if they can write opera, I can write opera. I was so curious. <laughs> so I applied the next year and didn't get in. And then the next year I, I, I tried and got in that time. I was looking at some of the people on the list that mm -hmm. have uh, done the program and I was kind of surprised. Like there were people that I recognized, but I didn't realize that all of these people had an interest in opera mm -hmm. writing. So it was just so <laughs> um, fascinating to see. Maybe maybe I need to go into opera. Why writing. not? Maybe this is what what's this? You mean? learn a lot. You learn a lot. <laughs> like I, I learned so much. Like there's this one point in the last opera that I wrote for that um, Lib Lab, it was a suspense drama, and there was just this one moment where it I just got shivers, and um, one of the facilitators asked us, "Where's the moment that makes you choke up? What makes you cry?" And he said something like the F sharp. And I'd said, when she hands it in, and it was the same moment. So we were telling the story um, with our different languages. It was amazing. The F sharp really gets me. <laughs> As a musician, I understand that statement I very much. I don't even know if that's, that's exactly what he had said, but it was the same moment in the play. It's where this yeah, this, absolutely. Someone holds the ring of this woman that we realize is 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 dead now, and say, "What does it say?" And like the inscription, it was just pretty amazing. But uh, it it is very very time consuming. Yeah, 
Rex, I'd love to have you guys chat about what it's like to go from theater to opera a little bit. Well, you know, sometimes it's a mixed blessing um, because, well, the first one was Boiler Room Suite that I adapted into an opera. And I couldn't do all the little witty, fast exchanges that I did in the play because they just didn't work when you had these big voices wanting to expand the text. So the next one I wrote was from scratch. So I didn't get the chance to do a a short experimental opera that I could really get my feet grounded. I had I went for the, the oh, big so one. So you you didn't get introduced to Lib Lab? No, no, not at all. Ah. No, no. I got uh, Quentin Doolittle, a uh, uh, composer from Calgary, wanted to do uh, an adaptation of uh, a Boiler Room Suite. You know, I had to go to the, the Banff uh, Leighton artist colony and sit there in the woods and, and work away on this thing. And, uh, we, and we had an initial short uh, production of it, sort of bare bones production of it. And then we took the whole thing to... Uh, England wow. and to Wales uh, and uh, and the company. One piece that I worked on with uh, Elizabeth Rom, we worked in that way of like I would write a few scene, a few pages, and she send back uh, a, a music. She's fast, fast composer, so. We didn't even know how it was all going to finish when we started and as we were developing it. And it ended up being this huge, long show that we had to cut back on, you know. But what's wonderful, though, is sitting and watching those singers do their thing and just lifting the whole experience to the the ether. Agreed. It's wonderful. Beautiful. You know, and you know it's not just you being responsible mm-hmm. for everything. And I guess it's a different kind of collaboration too, because as a playwright, you're probably uh, more or less a, it's a solitary kind of road mm-hmm. until you get a dramaturg in there and you know workshops. But how, what's it like to create with the musician? It's not even a a person that's uh, in writing. Theater, yeah. they're actually writing the sound. How's that? Well, I, collaboration? I did. It's interesting because there are a, a few times like I would cut some of the dialogue or the libretto because the music did what I wanted those words to do. And sometimes the composer would say, I need something to bridge these two pieces of music. So I'd have to figure out what in the story makes sense there. Um, Librettists don't get a lot of spotlight um, in the opera world. The composer really does get a lot of the the focus. And I understand it. Like for any, anyway, for the libretti I have written, tends to be like one page translates to maybe four pages of score one page of text yeah um Mm -hmm. and it takes it there's a lot to go into writing that Mm -hmm. and after that 
there are very few people I can think of who do have the skill to be the dramaturg for the musical and written combination. I know a few people here in Toronto, but I think it just has to be the two of you have to have a good working relationship. I know people who've, you know, switched out four composers or been the fifth librettist to work on something. You have to just find the right match and deal with that and be able to stick with what you feel works for the piece because you might not have that one person who can help you with the dramaturgy. Did you have any arguments, Marcia, about uh, between you and the composer about uh, whether the music could say it all um, or that you needed more libretto? Yeah, well, oh, there's only one one composer I would say I had arguments with and he it was it was an interesting thing he I think he didn't like the piece that I had written so he would pick at little things and we had agreed that there was this one moment where it would represent the person hyperventilating and what I was thinking my influence was was uh oh gosh which opera is that Benjamin Britten I think where someone is doing the laughing song <laughs> whatever and I just thought if you could write in so that the the singer could be doing a hyperventilating thing and he's saying well what do you mean and I explained mm -hmm. it to him and I worked in it okay and then when we came to presenting it wasn't there he just wrote instead of writing music he wrote she hyperventilates and I said what happened and he said oh it doesn't work so he didn't even try and that bothered me. That's the mm -hmm. most disrespected mm -hmm. I've ever felt with a collaborator. Because I think when you go into it, you're thinking, oh, I wonder what the two of us are going to create. I wonder what our baby is going to look like, whatever. And he was just right. very yeah, yeah. Yeah. reluctant and had his own ideas. You know, it was like a funny story based on like a student having a crush on me and then waiting until he was older to seek me out. And, you know, based on a few true things there. And he just could not get over this woman. He just kept saying, well, what's wrong with her? She, she's not married or what? Like he he just disagreed Instead with of the saying, story. Yes, it was a lot of pushback. Yeah. And um, and therefore hmm. he wasn't able to to write it. So like uh, for the most part, it's a wonderful experience. It's a delicate process, mm. for sure. But but that sounds like a wonderful opportunity. You want to inspire the the composer in the same way that you want to inspire the the yeah. designer. In yeah, a, in, and he in a like play. he had said that he'd heard and that he knew, but the fact that he didn't call me when he was writing to to try to get me to help him with that showed that he just disapproved or did not like and wasn't going to put his um, energy toward it. But the good thing is everyone got to see that about him. <laughs> and I, I think he'd have a hard time finding a librettist <laughs> to work with in Toronto. Alternatively, could you share with us a time that you felt great about something that happened? Like you were like, wow, that was 95 amazing. 95% of Just the a time. 95%. Okay. I, yeah. I tell you, when just sitting on the piano bench with that first composer and me figuring out that I had a, I knew how to talk to someone who spoke with music, to see him get excited and then come up with something. And then at each of the presentations, seeing our little scenes get sung so beautifully. Yeah, it's, it's magical. Yeah. It's magical. Mm -hmm. 
in writing uh, some lyrics, do you have a, your own sort of rhythms and melody in mind so that your, your lyrics kind of fit into some kind of vague musical pattern that you, that you have, uh, you think about, but you don't necessarily t even say. I think the same way that I write for music is the way that I write for spoken, is I imagine the way the actor would say it. And since I'm an actor, I have my range or whatever it is. And then I will see an actor do it. It's like, oh, they paused there. Oh, they're screaming there. Like, that all works, too. So I might write that way, but I have I don't really have an expectation. And I'm happy to be surprised. Yeah, you have to be. You can't put your inadequate, untrained co composition mentality into the, into the script. But you always have to be conscious that you're writing for, uh, it's going to turn mm -hmm. into music. Yeah, right? I, I, it's little things. Do you ever think about a time signature? No, I don't. But I think about, um, like, if a sentence of a lyric ends on a certain word, that it's it can't be a K or... You know what I mean? Like I had this thing, a couple that was breaking up and I'd had that, you know, the the truck will be here soon. It's not a nice word to sing. And if the opposer wants to hold her to hold on that, it's going to be nice. So I change it to the the movers will be here soon. And even picking the names like Celia, mm. you know, like, you know, that's a nice word to call out, you know. So that, if that in a way, it's kind of musical and thinking about how if this is to be sung, it is. Mm. how will it sound? How will it come across? How much leeway do I give the composer? <laughs> the truck. <laughs> Aww. Okay. Uh, I have another question for you. <laughs> what kind of stories do you like to listen to or seek out? And how and do you find that that is something that you are gravitated to write also or are they quite different? I like a bit of everything. You know, I, I'll watch zombie series. I'll watch, you know, the police procedurals and the medical shows. I don't last when I feel that the um, stories aren't genuine anymore, when I feel that the stories are pandering to the most popular thing that the audience talks about. And I, if I can see right through that, I, I lose interest. But I, mm. I just like, I like being surprised, you know, if a story is set in a place that I, like something like Six Feet Under, set in a funeral home. I thought that was a brilliant series. And yes, the, the, it was a funeral home, but it was really about a family and their interesting dynamics. Mm -hmm. It's hard to put into words what I like, but I'd say strong writing and good acting no, it... are right up to the top. Did you have any mentors or people in your life that really pushed you forward or gave you a particular lift, boost? Yes, Janet Sears. When I one of my temp jobs was working as a receptionist when Canadian Stage first formed, when, when it merged between Toronto Free Theatre and Centre Stage Company, and um, she sent in her photo and resume to one of the artistic directors at the time. And it was my job to open the mail and then to sort it and things like that. And I couldn't help it. But I read her letter and I felt so inspired by her. And then I got to know her and I told her that story. And she said, oh, well, glad to help or whatever. 
But when I wrote my first full, I was writing my first full length play, Perfect on Paper, I contacted her and asked her for some help because I'd gotten stuck. And her big advice was um, book the theater, hire the actors, and you will have to have something ready for them by the time. And I was like, whoa, okay. So I didn't know I could do that. You're right. I, I had a smaller budget than that. So I booked the actors to come to my, my apartment. And uh, I said that I'd do a barbecue afterwards. And sure enough, I had the script ready a full week early and sent it to them. So that, that's Brilliant. been great advice that really, I set deadlines for myself all the time and treat it seriously like I don't just say well I'll move it or I'll change it I I stick to them and then mm -hmm. another mentor is Dave Carley because he was the uh, uh, script editor or story editor for uh, the radio dramas at CBC and when we sat down for our first session of notes he just showed me how big the world can be um, that you don't have to narrow it to like you know, the stage. And that's how I was able to write radio dramas. And he asked questions and told me th things that he found confusing. And he never told me how to fix them. He said that was for me to do. And I am a dramaturg now myself. And that's that stayed with me. And I tell people that they can disagree with me. You know, you can wait to see it in front of an audience. Like that's if that's important to you, like I, I'm not telling you how to write. I'm just asking you questions and telling you areas that I have questions about. So those are my two main mentors. Mm, thanks for sharing. And also it covered one of my questions I've been asking every person, which is just for good advice. You know, I don't know who's going to listen to this. So great advice is great advice. And we could all use some of that moving forward. Well, you know, an hour goes so fast and I feel like there's so much more there. We could all chat about forever, but Rex, before I, you know, close off this great conversation, you have anything else you'd like to add or ask? Well, there were so many things that I wanted to talk about with Marcia, but just let me say that some of the things that I admired about the writing, mm -hmm. the sense of mischief, <laughs> the ways of characterizing uh, things Racism, for instance, was is characterized by these sort of microaggressions and not by extravagant characters who are just mean, necessarily. You avoid cliches uh, beautifully. I wondered how your strongest characters are old women <laughs> uh, and young women, too. But how do you do you have a a model, a, a kind of platonic uh, ideal of a woman who is so strong and uh, you don't want to meet in a, a, a back alley anywhere. <laughs> uh, because those women are so delightful and yet uh, fearsome and kind of role models, I think. Where do they come from? Yeah, thank you for... Thank you. Thank you so much for saying those those kind things. Um, well, you know, I'm Cynthia Johnson's daughter. 
And uh, she came to Canada on her 30th birthday, leaving four children behind and earning enough money to send for my father eight months later and then sending for the rest of us. Um, She is determined. She worked hard. She took no nonsense. And she's my hero. And all that stuff you said about how I write Mm. about racism, I want to surprise people. There are people who think that a black woman is writing about colonialism. Here it comes. I, as a white person, am going to get beaten up. I was in no way interested in portraying white people as villains and black people as perfect. It's not true. And it's, it's limiting. And unfortunately, that's all the internet gods would allow us to record on that day. On today's show, we sat down with playwrights Rex Deverell and his guest, Marcia Johnson, and discussed her play, Serving Elizabeth. If you're interested in reading the show, it can be found online for purchase at the Canadian Play Outlet. And I really recommend doing so. Stage Right is brought to you by the Globe Theatre in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada Council for the Arts, my associate producers Tanner Zare and Riley Hardwick, who created our theme song and all the music for the show this season, Chris Haynes, our sound engineer, and me, your host, Sierra Haynes. I'd like to give an extra special shout out to Riley for taking home the 2022 Jesse Award for Outstanding Sound Design and Original Composition for his work on the Fire Hall Arts Center's Mary's Wedding while this season of Stage Right was in post-production. We are so proud of you. If you want to keep up with our theater online, find us on Instagram at Globe Theater Live. And if you want to see what I'm up to, you can always find me online at The Sinking Canoe. Thanks for listening, and please exit stage right. Happy closing! Happy closing!